the myth that anyone who is experiencing thoughts of suicide or even has a history of suicidal behavior is destined to always think that way, feel that way, behave that way. I think, I think that is a myth. there my name is sean and this is suicide noted on this podcast i talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories every year around the world millions of people try to take their own lives and we almost never talk about it and when we do talk about it many of us including me are not very good at it so one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors Huge thanks to everyone who has joined me here on the podcast since we launched in July of 2020, and of course to everybody who listens. We really do appreciate it. And I want to share some good news with you all. Earlier this week, we hit a milestone of sorts. We surpassed 10,000 downloads per month. Why does that matter? Well, more people are hearing this podcast and these stories of survival, and presumably people that need to hear it. So that feels good. We're doing the work and people are hearing it. And let's just keep doing what we're doing so people feel less shitty and less alone. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at suicidenoted.com or on Facebook or Twitter at Suicide Noted. And keep in mind, we are talking about suicide on this podcast, as the title suggests. So take that into account before you listen. But I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. Today, I am talking with Scott. Scott lives in Michigan, and he is a suicide attempt survivor. Scott, you didn't have to get all dressed up for me, man. You're you're muted. How many times have you heard that in the last two years? (sighs) Too many to count. Yeah, it's snowing. I'm having trouble keeping warm today. So, yeah. You're so Midwestern. You've got the Michigan sound. I love it. I wish I could hear the the northern Midwestern accent through somebody else's ears. <laughs> so when you hear other people in that area, it doesn't register because it's just what standard. Say. It's just the standard dialect, the standard accent. Yeah. Well, I'm from New York, and I, I've you know I've, I've mostly lost my accent more or less. But when I go, I can recognize it as being a little different than others. So. Yeah. Well, okay. Thank you for doing this. Appreciate it. Uh, why in the world? Why in the world would you want to talk about suicide to the world? Nobody talks about this stuff. For me, that's like a very meta question. Like there's layer upon layer. The most present answer is, I just really enjoy the podcast and really appreciate mm. hearing people's stories. Everybody's so different, and I just each time I just love learning from people. I think. And, and that's the, I guess, really contrasts, you know, how amazing you can, you can listen to people and tell their stories and just think how amazing they all are. And at the same point, everybody that's on your podcast at some point didn't feel, certainly didn't feel that way about themselves, my, you know, myself included. So. Mm, sure. I wonder, can someone, you might not like this statement and or question, does somebody have to be feeling not amazing to try to end their lives? I wonder, maybe we're playing with words and semantics here a little bit, but it makes me think probably they have to feel pretty shitty, right? I don't know if, if, if we get down to the basics of, of suicide, it's behavior. So there could be so many 
drivers of behavior with without that assumption. So I didn't mean yeah. to didn't mean to put that on everybody or assume that about everybody, but that's a good point. Yeah, I'm annoying with my questions. By the way, I we will talk more about your very cool, interesting, and rather unique. We're gonna get to this story, you know, the S-word story for sure. But I want people to know who hear this. Scott does some very cool things in the state of Michigan and has a virtual or online presence. Your YouTube videos are not only good, but they're aesthetically pleasing. I'm impressed by that. It's uh, trial and error, learning through doing. And uh, so I, I appreciate that. Where does the story begin? How do we begin these, dude? How, where do you start? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I'll, I'll, I'll try to start with the chronological chronological approach, if, if that works. Um, that's a good starting point, sure, default. So I, I mentioned, uh, so I lived in Michigan most of my life. A brief stint in Idaho, um, and that was in, as an adult. I was born and originally raised in Ashtabula, Ohio. Had a relatively a, a stable two-parent family. I was raised with an older brother named Sean. Spells it differently, but yeah. So I, I appreciate speaking to to. I could I could kind of be I have a vicarious or I guess yeah. a conversation with him by proxy through. Yeah through this, but nothing too remarkable. Um, but when, when my family moved to Michigan, I had a pretty hard time adjusting. And I was, a, I think a third grader when I enrolled in, in school in Michigan and just had, had difficulty building roots and finding, like finding myself fitting in and started to have some significant thought distortions, definitely by fourth grade, uh, just continuing to worsen by fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade. And by the time I was 14 years old, started having thoughts of suicide and thinking mm-hmm. I maybe would be better off not, not being around. Um, never acted on it. Those were just thoughts and thoughts I didn't share. Interestingly, I was in, um, by the time I was in middle school, my parents had me seeing a therapist and I started, I was prescribed antidepressants, but nobody, I mean, you mentioned the, the S word, nobody asked, nobody mentioned the S word, even with a, a kid that's presumably got something going on and enough where he's getting treatment, but Never talked about it. Nobody asked. So it was a secret. It's in, it's astounding to me how hard it is for people. And I don't want to be a dick about it because if it's hard for most people, then there's something hard about it. And just because it happens to be not as hard for me. I mean, I do have a podcast about it after all. I don't want to be a jerk, but it, I just, I don't get it. Where do you think that's born? As well, Why can't people ask 14-year-old Scott, hey, are you okay? Hey, are you having thoughts of maybe doing something to, you know, what, what's so hard about that? You know, I would say for, as far as my parents, so they were savvy enough to realize our youngest child's isolating. This isn't looking good. I, they were savvy enough to realize that, but that doesn't mean they had any, any real knowledge or wisdom about behavioral health, mental health, about suicidal mm-hmm. thoughts. Um, mm-hmm. I think they just didn't, there, there wasn't really a script because we don't talk about it. I'm going to be 41 years old tomorrow. You know, this time in my life, middle school, that's like early mid nineties. Um, and and so things were different then too. So as far as the professionals I saw, I mean, there was just, we still don't know that much about psychology. So let, let alone the study of suicide. Right. Fair. Fair. So I, that's, that's my thought, at least for that period, that period in time. Yeah. The, the, I think we make, there's this thing in history where we assume things that are happening now matter more, like just because we're here now doesn't mean we've got most things figured out. Right. In fact, we probably know almost nothing. Maybe more than the 90s, a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But weirdly, the percentage of people attempting to take their lives 
from the data I've seen is not going down and we know more. So do we not know more or do we know more? I don't know. Yeah, and it's hard. It depends on where you look too. It's like US, we had two decades of increasing suicide rates, but there was a period during that where the global rates went down. So it's like, where, it's also where, where are you looking for? for how the- are you, how, and, and how are you measuring? Mm-hmm, yeah. Right. Are opioid death suicides? Some say would say, yeah, some, some of them. It's tricky. Well, even when we talk about like interpersonal violence, like in an urban setting, it's, I think it's fair to ask the question, is some of that suicidal in nature if somebody's self-destructive behaviors to the point that they're putting themselves in harm's way, right? You could really look and dig and dig. So you're 14. And based on what I'm seeing in front of me, you look seven because you look half your age. So if somebody at that age, a teacher, a parent, a friend, and I realize the person asking questions matters, that it's not the same. If someone would have said, hey, man, I think that you, you seem like you're in trouble. Would you have been honest with them? My best guess is that it would be hard to be honest with them, but I think I would have had a hundred percent better chance of sharing than that. What happened in reality with nobody asking. So. Mm. And before we, I want to hear more about teenage years and presumably leading to a suicide attempt. Do you have, this is a tough question. Do you have any idea the why behind your, I know you moved. And not not to minimize that at all. Some people move and they kind of acclimate. They do okay, right? Um, you didn't. Any is it? Do you think it's a genetic thing? Do you think it was? What do you think? Genetics is a hard thing to talk about. Be, I mean, behavior, human behavior. I, I think behaviorally, it's safe to say we're the most complex species uh, on the planet. So I think to take any behavior and say, oh yeah, that, that's we can say there's a genetic component, but I. As far as cause, I wouldn't use the word cause, but, but there, I mean, that, that could certainly be, there could be genetic components that lead to a certain physicality, personality, or disposition that might be risk factors that might be, you know, just talking about very kind of um, indirect as an indirect variable. I mean, that's, that's possible. I think for me, as far as when I look back and I, you know, we all tell ourselves our narratives when I tell myself, like, look back through my life and the narrative I see is, you know, I think the move was a starting point where I didn't, I was trying to figure out how to fit in. And I quickly, within a couple of years, got to the point where I just viewed myself, my social narrative, my narrative of myself was that I'm a pariah, kind of an untouchable and outcast that I was uh, ostracized. And I can't necessarily, I could point to very minor things that could give me those signals, but the most honest thing I could say is just to say that they were thought distortions that I had that uh, did not fit the actual reality. Pariah is a strong word, man. Mm. So yeah, suicidal thoughts through high school, never acted on it, thought about it a lot, thought about it a lot, never talked about it. Um, When I got to college, my first semester in college, life almost started to seem like it was going to be, feel a little bit okay. You got a lot more space. The, The pressures and the conceptions of how I thought others viewed me in high school was to some degree eradicated because I was no longer in the presence of that same peer group or the same group of teachers, um, coaches. So that idea of exploring who you are, maybe, maybe the labels in the, that I put on myself don't have to last kind of, kind of thought. So I had maybe a a few months of freedom where college felt good. And then, Mm -hmm. um, 
things started going bad. I, I started dating for the first time and dealing with the ups and downs of relationships, jealousy, heartbreak, feeling unloved. Mm-hmm. Those things, those things were definitely, you know, when we talk about causes, the factors and in, factored into suicidal thoughts at those times. And my second year in college, my dad was diagnosed with cancer and he, he died about six months later. And that was a, a really difficult thing. And I, I think all those things are, were parts, some of what led to me um, attempting suicide at the age of 24. 24. Um, all right. So you get through college. Did you finish? It took me seven, seven plus years, but I, I, I finished. Uh, that was definitely with a lot of help from other people encouraging yeah. me to go back. Um, after, after my dad died, my f- sophomore year, I dropped out. And then when I, I re-enrolled in the spring semester, I could really only keep it together for about one semester a year. So I was, I was dropping out of school basically um, every other semester. Are you getting help? Cause you'd already seen a therapist at least once. I, I was throughout this entire duration um, was, was seeing a therapist. And then by the time I was in college, I was also seeing a psychiatrist. So when I was younger, I had meds prescribed by, you know, a general practitioner. Um, but by the time I was in college, I was, I was seeing both a therapist and a psychiatrist. Meds. Yep. Diagnosis you agree with? I'll preface this by saying I've, I've worked in behavioral health for over 12 years. I, there's a certain thing. I, I take diagnoses to some degree with a grain of salt. I mean, it's a cluster of symptoms that we don't necessarily have biomarkers for. So it's uh, my view of diagnoses are they're helpful to the extent that they can lead to helpful treatments and interventions. But aside from that, I had an issue with um, seeing a diagnosis as an identity to a degree. Uh, major depressive disorder, that was the main one. So I, view, I thought I just have depression. This is my, you know, almost my destiny, uh, mm. which I think this, this sense of identity, I'm, yep, I'm a, I'm, I'm a depressed person. I have depression. I am depression. The, the identity kind of formed into, uh, it's kind of like what, what I'm destined for, fa- kind of fatalism, right? Um, mm-hmm. And by the time before I attempted suicide, um, I had tried so many different medications and treatments that they gave me the label of treatment resistant depression, which to me was kind of like, here's your nail in the coffin. Um, that's, that, that was my take on it. So, so as you were alluding to, I've, I've been involved in suicide prevention, um, really since 2014, there, there were times in my life where I thought about suicide every day because there was a pain and I, I await to life and I didn't want to, that I didn't want to experience. And I still think about, I, I think about suicide every day. It's just in, in terms of suicide prevention now. So so yeah, I, I think about this. I talk about this all, all of the time. Yeah. So you're in your early twenties and you are getting through college in sort of stops and starts. Yeah. Yeah. And then you are 24. What's going on then? 24. My attempt was um, in this, in the summer. So in between um, college terms mm-hmm. and at this point, Usually, usually in between semesters, I would be back living at my mom's house. She happened to work um, two hours away. So she would actually spend her weekdays out of town living with her mother, my grandmother. Uh, it was a time period where I was, I was kind of home alone. And that's, that's when I attempted or what I call my attempt. Prior to that, I had multiple instances where what I would call aborted attempts, where maybe one or two, I had some real superficial injury. Um, but was always able to stop myself. Whereas what I call my suicide attempt is where, you know, when I was 24. So home alone, my mom has a little Yorkie and, and I think, well, she, well, my mom will be home 
uh, in a couple days. So the dog will be okay. There'll probably be just be some messes in the house. I'll leave enough food and water. And, and I think, um, you know, I def I don't want my mom to find me. And I mean, honestly, I don't want any anybody to find me to have to go through that experience. Uh, but I didn't want somebody close to me to find me. So just kind of decide now is the time. There was no real, there was no real pressure or reason other than just decade plus of, of suicidal thoughts and depression. And if there really was like a precipitating factor at that time that was most immediate, it was the fact that I had two, two job interviews set up. And I thought that night when I attempted suicide, I had the thought, why start something new? Because so I mentioned I'm going to be 41 tomorrow when I was a teenager. I sure as heck, I didn't think I was going to be 20. You know, just kind of the whole through the progression of life, certainly didn't think I was going to live to be 20. Didn't think I was going to be, then I didn't think I'd live to be 25. Then I didn't think I'd live to see 30. Um, eventually I stopped thinking that way, but yeah, 20, 24 thinking, why start something new? I think this is my destiny. Mm. Uh, I'm going to die eventually by suicide. So why, why start a new job? Why do this? So I kind of improvise a, a, a method, which was interesting because it wasn't really a method that I thought of previously. And I go to a, what I, what I think is going to be a remote lo location, but also a location where I would want to have my last breaths, my last smells, sounds, sights. I kind of try to get dressed up to die with whatever dignity I think I can, can, can mm -hmm. have. And in Michigan bars close, typically they're not allowed to serve alcohol after 2 PM. So this was, this was in the middle of the night. I thought I was driving out to a remote lo location after people would be out on the roads. Um, but I, I, well, I also just partly wasn't thinking straight because I was planning to end my life in my car on the side of the road on a, on a scenic highway. I was, I was out there and I think somebody must have seen something and called 911. So I, I was saved by first responders. Before the actual attempt. Yeah. I mean, I was in, in midst, midst attempt, uh, th thankfully a kind of a, a slower, I guess, um, not an instantaneous method, a, a slower method. So there was time for uh, first responders to get to me. And I ended up being, you know, brought to the emergency room and, and treated there. And then basically given the, it wasn't really a choice. It was a coerced choice of uh, you can either um, have yourself committed to the inpatient psychiatric inpatient unit, or we will uh, do that for you. And it will be easier for you to get out if you commit yourself. So that, that was what I was told probably, probably by a social worker. And this was before I worked in behavioral health. So this was all new and scary, scary new terrain for me. So, so then I, I was uh, hospitalized for, I think, five days after that. No pressure. Like I said, there's nothing I ask that you have to answer. And you know that you're intentionally not saying the specific method. Is that something that you focus on because of the work you do? Yeah. Safe, safe messaging, safe reporting are, are things that are really important to me. You can debate the research, but there's been tons of studies on it. And normally the most of the studies are really about news, news reporting. And when we see prominent stories repeated right. over and over and over, the worst ones are when it's about a celebrity. And then if they're reporting the method, well, just from the report after report of celebrities, they seem to find suicide rates go up 13%. If they're reporting on the method, we start to see copy, copycats where, where people are attempting by the same method of up to 30% increases. So, and I, and I realize that this is a different scenario and format, but I just think of the benefits and costs and I think why, sure. why risk it. It's for a conversation for another day, but I would love your feedback because I think I do. I'm rather loose, right? And things come up. And I think that there are people out there who 
very few have reached out to me about it, but I, I, I welcome it. I may not change, but I welcome a conversation about that in terms of sometimes do we need to talk about this or that? Maybe we don't. I'm, I, I err on the side of, hey, the, open and honest includes all sorts of things, but hey, yeah, maybe maybe I'm a little bit irresponsible. I don't know. Each guest, each person you speak with, it's their story, right? I mean. Right. A couple of questions about that experience, if I may. Mm-hmm. In as much as you can recall, what is it like to have a real clear intentional plan to end your life and you're not dead and now you're in the hospital or what, like, how does that? So my, my personal experience with that was um, I've been caught. I've been caught. I've been found out to put it in simplistic terms, going back to that, this lifelong narrative of where I thought I fit into society was that I didn't basically, I thought I was a, a bad person. I kind of felt like I was caught and that now I was exposed. Not only did I have these shameful thoughts of suicide and now, now it's out there. People are going to know about it. People are going to find out about it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I felt, sh- I felt ashamed from that. And then I was kind of the same, same as state that I was in leading up to my attempt that night was, um, I was just kind of indifferent, just so totally detached, totally disconnected, totally detached. Um, so I, so I wasn't pissed that I was saved. I wasn't, grateful to be alive. I didn't, I didn't feel like a failure. I just, I was just kind of indifferent. Right. And so, and how long are you in the hospital for? You said five days. Do you remember it at all? I remember certain things I've like written, tried to write a story about um, that experience. And so I don't know how, to what degree my current narrative actually matches reality, but Mm -hmm. I, I can remember there were, (laughs) there were good things and bad things. So when I speak publicly about some of these things, I try to focus on the good things. I don't usually talk about the bad, the bad things, but some really great people there that that helped in significant ways. And then some people that I think mm. overall, it was more of a setback um, where, where they just tried to shame you and, and oh, yeah. felt judgment. Um, and this is the people that are getting paid to help you. And that's, that's the thing that's frustrating. Yeah. You know, I, while I was in there, I had a, the psychologist that led the group therapy sessions basically said suicides tantamount to homicide. And so I should, I should basically, which told me, uh, she didn't say this part explicitly, but told me I could basically have killed some, somebody, which I assume when you interview suicide attempt survivors, most of them had absolutely zero uh, relation or whatsoever to, to homicide. So yeah, it makes no sense. So that, I mean, there were, there were experiences like that. And then, you know, you, you get to spend five, 10 minutes, if you're lucky with the psychiatrist who, I mean, so, so, so you're like, well, what, what benefit am I getting? Yes. They adjusted my meds because from their perspective and for mine too, clearly what I was, the regimen I was on wasn't, <laughs> you know, didn't keep me from trying to kill myself. So that was part of it. And then it was just my first exposure to uh, adult psychiatric inpatient unit with people in restraints, people screaming, bloody murder, people that are in the midst of some severe psychosis, hallucinations, delusions, and being in that environment um, was just, it was shell shock. It was, it was as much as movies and TV sensationalized. There are, for me, it was a sensational environment, but there were some good things too. I, I do a, a suicide prevention training where I share a particular story from my hospitalization. Um, cause I think it's important. Um, one of the days I was just sitting around the edge of, of one of the main rooms where there's like the dining room, the commons, and I was just sitting on the perimeter in a chair and a social worker, don't remember her name, but she came and sat beside me. And she basically said one small thing. It kind of had positive reverberations 
for a lasting period of time. She sat next to me and she said, for you to have tried to kill yourself, you must have been in a lot of pain. It seems wild. Like it seems like nothing it seems simplistic, basic, but she said that and listened to me. And, mm. you know, I said I was super disconnected. Like uh, that kind of helped me reconnect a little bit to life, mm. feeling like this person at least could see that because most people in my life, most people in probably most people's lives that have attempted suicide aren't going to acknowledge it to that degree. You know, many of us might have people that love us and care about us, but I sure didn't feel like somebody understood me. And she was kind of saying, I can, I can kind of see, I, I see what you're, you're going through, you know, mm-hmm. like I had, I had a memory of that interaction. And when I, when I was discharged from the hospital, you know, hospitalization doesn't cure anybody. It's, you know, if, if you're lucky, you get your medications adjusted, or maybe some people get like electroconvulsive therapy, you know, they, they might get something that benefits them. But for the most part, it's a holding, it's just a holding pattern. And yeah. we hope that your, we hope your crisis has diminished, but not a cure. So there were other periods in my life after that, where I set off with the intent to end my life. And literally the memory of that social, like that interaction probably saved my life repeatedly. So, I mean, that was positive. There was, there was this other, um, I think it would be considered a behavioral tech, but basically it's 24 hour care. So they need people there 24 hours to actually do the, 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 the bulk of the, the work with the patients. And there was this guy that just uh, treated me like a human being, treated me like a person, uh, you know, and I don't know if this, this was like a thoughtful thing he said, or if he just said it because he thought it, but he was like, you know, you don't seem like you would, would be here. What, what's going on? Why are you here? And just kind of listened to my story. And we just talked about normal stuff, talked about music. Um, we both had an interest in this band, Not A Surf, which uh, I still love to this day. And he was telling me how their new album was, was so good just treated me like a human. And here's the wild thing. I was wearing a suit coat when I went into the hospital. So they, they take your belongings, your possessions. When I went to discharge five days later, he had burned a copy of their newest CD, slipped it in the inside pocket of my coat. And I just thought, holy shit, man, this, this guy was obviously cared enough to do that. That, that says a lot. So he's in the right job. Yeah. And he, and he was doing that job while he was going through school. I'm, you know, he probably has various graduate degrees and I'm hoping works in, I'm hoping this guy works in mental health, psychiatry, psychology, something, but right. wild story. A year later, my brother takes me to see not a surf for my birthday. So it would have been around March the year after that it's in Detroit. I think it was at the magic stick. One of the venue in Detroit, Michigan out front and in the front of the venue I see a couple of the band members, including their bassist. And who do I see? This guy from the hospital. So we end up hanging out for the whole night, talking, get some food. And then we exchange contact information. He and I, back when there used to be an instant messenger that people would on the computers, like before texting and smartphones, um, we we would stay in touch. And unfortunately, I lost touch. But I mean, Hmm. this was a guy that was just doing doing his job at the hospital. So that's that's part of my hospital story, too. So. You know, I don't think this podcast is explicitly around suicide prevention. I, I don't. I think it's a little bit more around, I don't know if I have the right word, suffering prevention. I don't want you to do anything, but it's your choice. That's the way I look at it, right? I will say this. I think that what the, that nurse and that tech did will do, if people embrace that, would do more for prevention of suicide than anything we're doing by a lot. Now, you might disagree, and I, and I want to hear more about your work after we get through the other stuff, but th- just that simple gesture and the impact it had on you. It's astounding. And it's equally astounding how f- it seems as if we don't really do it very often. Yeah. 
And we out, I say, you've heard this on the podcast. So it's like my little thing of outsourcing empathy. I think that's what we do. Go call the 1-800 number. It's like, you know, that's a, that's an option, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I'm talking to you now, bro. What are you doing? Why are you off? Like, what are you, man? So look, you're, you're not dead. Nope. So I know after 24, if you tried again, and if you're comfortable sharing, I want to hear that, you know, you didn't succeed. I don't know if my verbiage is accurate, but that's the word I'm using. You're here. So what's going on between 24 and March of 2022? After, after my attempts, after being hospitalized, I, I stuck with behavioral health treatment for about another year, still not finding relief. Oh, I will, I will say I did have a good relationship with my therapists at the time. And he came to, came to visit me actually in the hospital. And that, that meant a heck of a lot to have uh, my therapist mm-hmm. visit me while I was in the hospital. But at the same time, he, he came from a Christian perspective and that's not, I don't, I'm not necessarily religious. And so while we had a good relationship and he was definitely helpful, it just wasn't necessarily the best, best fit as far as philosophical perspectives, um, as far as, you know, maybe how I needed to see things. Um, so I, within a year after my hospitalization, hospitalization, I basically just quit all treatment, still struggled, but I, at least I wasn't dealing with, there were a lot of side effects of different medications that actually exacerbated my symptoms. Mm. Um, so just, just, there were things that made it worse. Um, and then just dealing with the other things. So actually for me, and this isn't, I, I don't want it to be taken as any kind of recommendation or advice, but for part of, for me, um, I think getting outside of that treatment paradigm, that mental illness paradigm was helpful to me. The interesting thing is I really didn't start to get too much better until I started working in behavioral health. So mm-hmm. I, I started learning these things to help, help other people doing these like psychosocial groups at uh, residential, basically residential treatment, special, specialized residential treatment. And it was kind of like learning f- from through doing, but learning through doing on the helper end. Um, is where I started to pick up insights and skills and things that were able to help me um, that unfortunately weren't just weren't parts of my treatment, my personal treatment previously. So that, wow. that, that, that was the gradual path. I would say if there, if there were the things that led me to get to the point where I know you'll get to the point of asking the question, do you think you think you'll die? I mean, none of us can predict the future, but I, I my answer today is there's a 0% chance that I'll die by suicide. Um, so part, part of me getting to this point, I think is learning, starting to gain insights and learn more about psychology, about behavioral health, doing those jobs. A big part of it then was just having a job where I felt like it, it made a difference. I felt like I had purpose. Hell yes. Hell, hell yeah. That is huge, right? Yeah. When I, when I was telling my chronological story as a child, one, one of the, what I thought the hardest thing for me was what I would call crippling social anxiety, but that was never a part of my, that was never a part of my diagnosis or or treatment regimen, it was always, well, of course, you're going to be social anxious when you are depressed and feel low about yourself. So we're going to, we're going to treat this and hope that this goes away. So um, it was just the process of, of working and having to go out into the world, which was scary and intimidating. And I didn't feel like I would belong there, but the more time I spent doing it, getting some feedback that, that, yeah, you do belong, you are okay here. You know, you are accepted just starting to feel connected, mm-hmm. connected to my job, connected to my community. Mm-hmm. I kind of started saying, just saying yes to things, like just trying to get involved in things that would other historically I would have never done. Um, so putting myself out there, I think was also a big part of, of kind of 2022. And it's also just the wisdom of having lived through that. Thankfully, you know, thankfully myself and the other guests you speak with, not everybody might be thankful, but I'm going to say, thankfully, you know, 
survived. We're still here. Not, not everybody's that lucky. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. So it's just the, the, I was able to survive each time I had set off with the intent to die, to kill myself. And each time I dealt with that each, even if I didn't always deal with it in a great way, I mean, each one is a learning, learning experience. So how many attempts do you have? So I really only say I have one attempt. I would count up probably somewhere between five to 10 aborted attempts where there were maybe, there were maybe two attempts where there was some, what would you call it? Um, superficial injury. When was the last aborted attempt? I was probably pretty close to 30. Right. Okay. So after the attempt and the hospitalization, so some years go by, so you're struggling. Yeah. And I, and I would say, yeah. And struggling to the point where I was there at a, the proverbial precipice, you know, thankfully enough ambivalence or fear or whatever to not, not go through with it. So all all the while teenage years into your twenties and even beyond, uh, you're in Michigan, right? And then I know you had a little little Idaho. I'm going to buy the book, A Brief Stint in Idaho, when it comes yeah. out. How many people in your life, other than obviously a nurse or a nurse tech who yeah. knows you? Yeah, you know some of these questions I'm asking. How many people know about it and know that you tried to end your life? Yeah, I mean, at, at this point, it's more people know about it than people that know me personally because, sure. you know, because of the the job I do and I speak publicly and I share my story and I started a YouTube YouTube channel last year. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. so there, there are more people than people that actually know me that know that I attempted suicide, but at the time of my attempt, um, you know, my, my family told each other and that actually, that was part of my hospitalization experience. That was really difficult was I ended up calling my older brother. I wasn't in jail, but it was like my, for my first, for my phone call, you know, like to tell, to see if he could tell my mom where I was and what happened. And man, that was a hard call to, to make. Ah, I bet. So my family knew. You know, that's the other thing I said, this conversation, almost a proxy for speaking to my brother, because we don't, we have a great relationship, but we don't talk about deep, uh, thing. like even when our dad died, I don't, I don't think we've mm. we maybe had a conversation once. So, so my fam, but my family knew, um, I had some family members that visited me in the hospital. And then after that, you know, it was a, t- it was a, for me, a tightly kept secret. There was one time where my grandmother had her church praying for me, which, uh, was, had the the misfortune of being there at the time. And it was, if to me, it felt humiliating and, mm. um, but yeah, tightly held secret. Then when I would get involved in like, um, relationships, you know, inter- intimate partner relationships, I would always kind of, if it started to get serious, I would always tell the person kind of in this way of like, just so you know, you need to know this defect about me so you can choose whether or not you mm. want to go any further. So I, I would tell people in, in that way, but otherwise, pretty much a tightly held secret until I started until I started getting involved in suicide prevention. And I started hearing part of prevention work. It's important to have people with what they call lived experience sharing. And so there I was trying to help people, but not sharing. And I kind of felt like a hypocrite. And it took me a lot of courage to work up to the point where first I presented it at, uh, um, on a panel discussion at the town adjacent to where I grew up. And in front of a bunch of strangers talked about it. And then I had this fear, okay, are my old classmates going to hear about it? Or even I was working in behavioral health, but I was like, not all my coworkers knew. So I was just worried about where this information is going to go. So each time has gotten easier, easy to say at this point, it's not a secret whatsoever. So, right. I'm thinking about the nurse and the nurse tech and the words that they said to you. Now that's their job. That's their job. Are there people, you know, and, and a lot of people who have that job don't do that. And they're probably in the wrong job, I think. Family, friends, partners, 
when they hear this stuff? And maybe it's changed a little bit now that they know the work you're involved with. I mean, do they freak out? Are they like that nurse? Are they somewhere in between? I'm going to guess my experience is similar to many people's in the fact that it's not addressed, it's avoided, it's not mentioned. There, There's nobody in my life that was ever inquisitive and just, you know, uh, of, of I think of avoiding it is has been my experience. I do have other family members who have who have struggled in throughout their lives in different ways and have had thoughts of suicide or even attempted suicide. And um, there's one family member in particular that we've had some conversations ab- about it. Um, and it's interesting. I can even self-reflectively say it's even hard for me to know when it's appropriate, when 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 to address it, to to try to guess whether somebody's whether somebody would value being able to talk about those things. So. Mm. So I, in, in little snippets with people who I know already have some understanding, there's been some discussion, but other than that, radio silence, I mean, radio silence, I kind of think it speaks to even something larger about our lack of curiosity, but that's a kind of different conversation. It's just kind of weird to me. I, I, it's always weird to me because I'm like this bizarrely curious person, <laughs> you know, who has a podcast about suicide. So, I mean, I think the people that are, people are compassionate and people are curious, but I think that's tempered by the fear of saying the wrong thing and doing the wrong thing. Right. Right. Um, Yeah. Yes. And mm -hmm. there's no real wrong, I guess there's wrong things, but not really. I mean, if you just care and you're curious, sure. You might say something that rubs someone the wrong way, but people tend to read that as, Oh, you care. Mm-hmm. All right. I, I generally, generally, I mean, yeah, if you're yeah, in the yeah. middle of an episode, who knew the fuck knows what's going to happen, but we know people know when you give a shit. No, no, I think like, you're right. Yeah. Okay. So I am curious, when do you make the jump and that decision to work in behavioral health? Full yeah. honesty, it was an accident. So like I said, I, I, I struggled to get through a four-year degree in seven years because of my interests, I had a, had an interest in psychology, try, you know, par- partly trying to figure out my own brain, um, but also just an interest in, in psychology and sociology. So I had a bunch of credits in psychology. The quickest way for me to graduate was to get a degree in psychology. Um, there's nothing that you can really do with a bachelor's in psychology. Like you, you'd be hard pressed mm-hmm. to find, oh yeah, this is the, the bachelor's in psychology career path, right? It's mostly to go on to further schooling, um, which I, I didn't really like school enough to take that gamble. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I, when I was out in Idaho, I was trying to find a job, get, trying to get settled out there, which unfortunately I, ne- I never really, never really got on my own feet. Um, I was out there kind of couch crashing with family members and, and friends and people that were kind enough to help me, but I never really got on my own two feet, but I did get a job at a children's home which was essentially residential treatment for, for youth. Uh, I think when, was late, when I was there as young as five up to 18, it was difficult, it, but it was super rewarding. They appreciated, they valued having somebody that had some educational background in psychology, um, even though I didn't know anything. I went through, through school in my own experience, but I didn't know anything. Um, and that, that got me started. So mm-hmm. I, I, I still didn't really, I, I was still dealing with depression and having thoughts of suicide when I was out there and kind of homesick. So I ended up moving back to Michigan and ended up getting a job at a specialized residential treatment center for adult males. And from there, I eventually got a job in community mental health and have been just kind of following that path. Um, when I worked for, started working for community mental health in 2014, that's when I got involved with the Suicide Prevention Coalition. 
there. Mm. And that, that's kind of what led to some of the other, other things I've already shared. Is that a statewide thing? This um, it's, it's pretty common here for that most counties. Sometimes it could be called a task force or sometimes it's a coalition. Um, and sometimes it's combined like a suicide prevention coalition combined with like substance use prevention mm-hmm. or overdose prevent, you know, which, which are related and different. Task force sounds militant. <laughs> yeah. I'm not ripping on them. I think they're phenomenal, but we are, we do approach this rather aggressively sometimes or from an angle of stop it, stop it. It's like, yes, stop it. And are you doing what that nurse did? Yeah. Well, well, it's like when you said uh, this podcast is really more about talking about suffering. I, I mean, I, I think I would say the same thing while I've been work, I've been working in suicide prevention and that's the role I'm in right now. I'd really rather reframe that as, you know, promoting life, helping people yeah. live. Right. I mean. Mm. So what's your job title today? My job title is suicide prevention facilitator, which is a job that Calhoun County in, in Michigan created because they have fairly elevated rates of suicide compared to the rest of the state, compared to the mm-hmm. country. They created this job to lead the kind of the countywide coalition work. I started in that role last year, nine to ten, nine to ten months ago. So still fairly new, less less than a year in doing that. It's not really a direct role. Like my a lot of my prior work was working with, you know, whether they're called clients or customers or, sure. or consumers, patients, but working directly with mm-hmm. um, individuals and their families. Whereas now it's it's really more like community organizing, um, getting different initiatives started and going. So, uh, but super rewarding. And I, and I, before I got this job, I was doing similar things um, in the, my county of residence more as a volunteer. So now it's, it's part of my eight to five and fits directly within, within the passion of what I want to do. So it's great. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe Michigan's a little different, but there's just, as far as I know, there's not that many things out there. Like just go to Google and check it out. There's just not that much stuff out there. There's more for loss survivors, which is wonderful. Um, for attempt survivors, it's tricky though because it bleeds into so many other things with yeah. addiction and mental health, and yeah. there's just not that much. Well, when you you bring up those things for loss survivors, so after my suicide attempt in 2005, one of the first things I did was look for a support group. I, I got my hopes up a couple times, and they always because they unfortunately many s- survivors of suicide loss support groups just use the word survivors of suicide SOS, right, right. and so. I got my hopes up a couple of times and then realized, no, this isn't for me. That was difficult. So as, as far as I knew, even though I knew some other, I got to have contact with some other people in the hospital that uh, were there for suicidal attempt, suicide attempts or suicidal thoughts in the, in my, my real life, I thought I'm, I'm the freak. I, there's, you know, nobody's been through this. I, I don't know who to talk to, which, which even wasn't true in my reality, but that was my perspective. 2018. So after I'd started I'd been working in behavioral health, getting involved in suicide prevention. 2018 started a support group, a suicide attempt survivor support group. So we actually meet this week. It's uh, still going, still going strong. So, but you're, you're right. Uh, It's, it's few and far between. With your support group, did you have some legal, did, or do you have some legal issues to, to deal with? Not legal issues, but when we started, you kind of have to deal with the, the, basically the fear and the stigma around it. Right. Um, Okay. Yeah, sure. This is the unfortunate thing, even in not just with my support group, but in, with behavioral health, mental health in general. Unfortunately, people's brains 
when when the topic suicide comes up or suicide risk, their brains go to liability. Yes, yes, um, yes. That's my that's my question. Is God forbid somebody in your group takes their life? Are you responsible? Are you legally responsible? Can some can you be sued? Not to invalidate those questions, but I think those questions would be applicable for pro suicide group that encouraged people to kill themselves. Sure. And okay. Fair, or, fair. Or, or even if we were talking about like assisted, you know, assisted suicide, like I, I could understand that, that fear and mm. I can validate that if that's what the group was, but a group focused on a peer support group of attempt survivors helping support one another to live. To me, it's a non-starter. It's like, you, you know, there's a high risk population. We know statistically, if we're looking at specific groups, those that are at most risk of, of dying by suicide are people who have already attempted. So that's, mm-hmm. that's me. That's, that's the other people in the group. So there, there was fear and pushback of having these people together. And I think part of the thought is also, well, are they going to just get around, sit around and talk about ways to kill them, like to kill themselves. So I, I think those fears could be legitimate only for groups that are actually like pro right. pro suicide groups, which I would have no intention of, of, of starting right. or being a part of. That's a good question. And even in the behavioral health field, um, I think that's part of why there are so few groups like it. Question that relates to today, but also probably goes back 30 plus years. What did you do to cope? If I go back to when I was younger, I didn't have a whole lot of different things. Physical activity. Um, like when I, when I was in, by the time I was in college, the only thing I could think of was trying to go running. And so I would try to have physical exertion to try to reset whatever was going on, or at least serve as some, some degree of distraction. So, so sports, athletics, physical activity. And I would say when, when I started to get into like in more endurance, long distance running, there, there have been a handful of times where I got like a runner's high where the, the weight that's always feels like is on my shoulders was just completely gone. I was happy to be alive. I was grateful to be alive. And I think even though it's pretty rare, like I, out of my, you know, I would say at this point, decades of running, I've, I've had probably five or less, fewer experiences of that, but I can, I can remember that I had those experiences. So that's like, it still serves a purpose. So that's a big one. Music. Uh, I've played a variety of musical instruments um, since I was a kid. And so I'll just play the guitar, play the piano and kind of get into that mode of some people call it flow. I would say like, it's automaticity when you're just kind of doing it, but not really requiring a lot of effort. So it kind of gets to zone out, which could in some ways have meditative qualities in other ways, at least, at least in certain times in my life. Oh, I just spent two hours without thinking of killing myself. Those are some of the things now I I definitely take. It's more of um, sleep. I mean, that's just the basic things that you don't, you don't think of Mm -hmm. really need to. And I think that's the hard thing when we talk Sometimes we can say, well, you need to exercise and eat healthy and get sleep. And it's, they sound like easy answers to people, but it's, they're, not, they're not the answer. It's not an easy answer. They're just really important components of being a biological, uh, living, breathing human being. So, um, but paying attention to my sleep is, is something that I, I do. And then now I use a lot of, I would say, psychological tactics. So a big part of the pain of existence for me is really comes from our social reality, going back to that sense that I don't belong here. I'm, I'm a social pariah that people are going to see, see that, you know, I'm not good enough to enter society, to talk to this person. Mm-hmm. And it also kind of relates to 
as a child, I, I was very much perfectionist, which, so like, there's this rigid thought of there's a, there's a right way to do things. Mm. And so the message to myself was there's a rigid way to do X, Y, and Z throughout every aspect of your life. And not only there is there, is there a right way, but you have no ability and you are incapable and competent of doing that. So, and that a lot of that dealt with social reality, with how others would, how I viewed others relating to me. Mm-hmm. So I try to take myself out of this, out of that social reality, you know, probably in the same way that some people might use religion or viewing the bigger picture or getting in touch with nature. But for me, I think I like to, I can have thoughts to myself, like, yeah, I am a biological animal. I have to eat and drink. I have to water myself and feed myself just to, just to survive every day. And it's, it starts to kind of take away this curtain of this, the social problems that our minds get stuck in so often. So I just have little tricks that help give me distance. I don't know if this is too, too abstract or if it makes any sense. <laughs> no, it makes sense. Yeah. Are you married? Yeah, I should have, I should have mentioned, um, been married, uh, since 2017. I, I got that right. It took me a while to, to find that. And, um, you're looking at somebody with no ring brother. So good on you. As long as you're happy, of course. Yeah. For me, my marriage, um, my partnership with my wife is a huge source of stability too. I mean, oh, I bet. Um, but just the, the different things to, to like ground, ground myself. When I mentioned that working in, in mental health helped me, yeah. a, lot of the, a lot of the strategies I learned that were helpful at first were just realizing that feelings are fleeting, that thoughts are fleeting. We don't necessarily choose those things. And if it's painful, it feels like it's going to be painful forever. But yes, taking a step back and at least giving myself the ability to intellectually know that that's not the truth. What you just said, I'm linking to being married, whether you intended it or not. And the, the danger, and it applies to me, actually, the danger that so many people, and there's a lot of men living alone, and we have these thoughts. It applies to women too, but I'm just speaking from my own perspective. And I think we don't have the person always to say, hey, sweetie, I know you're feeling like shit. And I know, but remember, you're going to wake up tomorrow. And usually in the mornings, you're a little better, whatever, right? If you don't, now it doesn't need to be a wife or a partner, or it could be a friend, but if you're living in isolation, yeah. that's fucking dangerous because yeah. you don't have that. And so when we talk about loneliness or isolation, there are things that I think that pe- some people aren't necessarily, I'm sometimes not particularly well-spoken or articulate, but I'm trying to get this point across. People don't realize one of the reasons I did the podcast was completely self-serving. I mean, I'm glad if it helps you too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But I was like, man, you know, there's a need here, but I, I want to have these conversations. And I, I think you ex- explained it perfectly well in it. So now I could say I can give myself that message of, hey, you're going to feel different tomorrow, if not tomorrow, the next week. Right. Um, whereas when I was 20 years old, I had no mm-hmm. no awareness or insight to that nature. Or even mm-hmm. at this point, you know, again, talking about the wisdom of going through it, if I'm feeling that way and I know I had just had a few drinks. Um, I can kind of start to make correlations. You know, sometimes there's a lightening of mood with, with alcohol. Sometimes there's not. So yeah. I, I, can, I can make those realizations. I know that I've been on medications before that like had drastic impacts on me, especially, gosh, I think I, I had uh, steroids to try to get rid of, rid of some neuropathy in my foot once and just set me on extreme suicidal thoughts. Thankfully, I was in my 30s at that point and had lived enough, learned enough to try to to try to start to put two to two together, mm-hmm. just being able to understand gives you a sense of, I have some control or some understanding of it, which while you might still be going through the emotional ups and downs, at least it, it makes it a little bit more 
survivable, I guess. Right. Yeah. How many people do you have in your life to talk to? Like legitimate good conversations that matter. A lot more than I ever did. I definitely have friends that I can have very, very friends and family that I can have serious, deep conversations with. Actually, now at this point in my life, and I think probably because I started speaking publicly about it and started the, that feel comfortable asking the curious questions. And then the, the support group, the, the monthly, like when you say, well, I, I started this podcast partly for me. The, I mean, the support group is amazing. Re- recently, typically we've got eight to 10 people that, that show up and they've all been there to some degree in, the, in at least touched on it in the same way that every, every guest that you speak with has and has that shared connection where it feels like we're on an even playing field, which makes it feel safe. It just feels safe, safe to talk, to discuss. Whereas unfortunately those in our lives that haven't experienced those things just don't have a basis or, or a clue of, of how to approach it. And then even looking at behavioral health professionals, there's unfortunately, you know, there's the hierarchical nature of this, this authority and I know that working in behavioral health, we try, we try to reduce that impact and we do person-centered planning and try to, but that, that hierarchy is there, you know, mm-hmm. and so just feeling like talking to people on an even playing field. So I'd say I have a lot, I don't know if I could put a number on it, but a lot of people I can talk to and even talking, going back to um, how I still had like what I would call aborted attempts after my attempt where I was hospitalized. By the time I got to be 30, I got to the point where I could make that call. Um, and my mom was my go-to person. And I could, I did make that call. Whereas before it was, I kept it to myself. If I was going to die or survive, it was, it was on me. It was up to me. Um, whereas by the time I was 30, I got to the point where I could give my mom that call and I couldn't explicitly say, Hey, I'm thinking of killing myself, but I could say a little bit coded, but I would say I need help. I mean, that's, (laughs) I could at least make that call and say those words. So yeah, I've got, I've got, got people now. Um, and I, and I feel confident that I can reach out for help now if I ever needed it again in the future. And I think the fact that I've told my story in front of hundreds, and then if you count the internet, thousands of people, including anybody in, in my city, my county, my family that want to listen, knowing that I've already put that out there, kind of taking away that shame mm-hmm. of the secret, I kind of feel like I could reach out to so many more people now just because of that. Just because 100%. of that. Definitely. Definitely. Trust. Which makes me think about um, Suicide Noted. Hopefully the people that speak with you, that they know they're putting that out there, that maybe that gives some sense for them too of, shoot, I would have never reached out before, but now I know that these people already kind of know what I'm going through. So, so it might make it a little bit more likely to happen. But, right. You yeah. never know. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, I'll, and most of the time I'll never learn. Yeah. But you never know. Sure. Are there any myths that you'd like to dispel? Perhaps ones that we've not heard before on the podcast, but any. The short one is probably the obvious, one of the obvious ones that I know I've heard. But the myth that talking about it, that asking somebody about suicide is going to put the idea in their head. Because we see that time and time again, even working in behavioral health. Guess what? The people that are doing those risk assessments, they still got fear in their minds. Even if it's somebody who's been, who they know has, has a history of either suicidal thoughts or attempts. There can still be a fear of, well, what if they're doing better now? I don't want to bring, you know, so even in the professional field, there can be fear and hesitancy. So just that would be the big that talking about it, asking about it, especially in a caring, compassionate way is going to put that thought. That's that is that is a complete myth. The maybe more original one that I would address is 
the myth that anyone who is experiencing thoughts of suicide or even has a history of suicidal behavior is destined to always feel that way, to always think that way, feel that way, behave that way. I think, I think that is a myth. We have to look at suicidal thoughts and, and, and suicide people that have died that the way they got there, that it's always an interaction of what's going on in their lives, a mix of psychological, of cultural, of societal, a mix of the, the environment. I mean, things like uh, ox- oxygen levels, you know, these minute things that can, can push us to feel one way or, or another that we're not even aware of in our environments. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a myth to think that because somebody's struggling at this time and this point in their life, even people with diagnosed mental illnesses, mental health conditions, that they're always going to be that way. And again, going back to that kind of identity, I could it, just as much as I said, I, I at a time took on my diagnosis as an identity. I took took on suicide, the, the, the thought that I'm destined to die by suicide as an identity. I think that's simply untrue. And we have control over the environments, but there's limitations to that. But I think if I looked at which elements that could lead to suicide that are the most, might be the most flexible is our own perceptions, our own perspectives. I might feel hopeless today and feel like I can only see the world in one way, but I think for everybody and anybody that's listening, I think there are things that you can do through behavior, through intentional choices, and hopefully you have people in your life that can help add to this, that can help change that percep- those perceptions that you experience. Um, and I'm saying that as somebody who has ex- experienced pretty persistent thought, thought distortions for a, a good part of my life. It doesn't matter what somebody's facing. There might be other people in very similar circumstances who have a completely different, right, a completely different perspective. And so I think just in acknowledging the different perspectives that we can have between people, we can have almost infinite perspectives within ourselves. We might have to cultivate, cultivate that if that's not an innate ability today. But I think that could be anybody's ability in the, in the future, if that makes sense. Mm. That, that was a long-winded answer, sorry. Oh man, I mean, come on. Some of these can't be short. I like the word distorted. I don't necessarily like the idea of it, but like I think that's an interesting and often accurate word, distorted. That just resonates. Do you think that someone who tries to end their lives is by definition mentally ill? If I were to give a strict answer based on the criteria from the DSM, I would say clearly no, because we know that there have been studies like psychological autopsy studies, and they found that 90, 90% of individuals who have died by suicide um, that have been in these studies after that. So it's, you know, after the fact, based on psychological, psychological autopsies, 90% did indicate that they had ex- were experiencing mental illness before their death by suicide. Th- that's based on retrospective analysis, asking family members, friends, but just even with that 90%, which sounds like a a high number, nine out of 10, um, that leaves 10% based on, based on that study, those studies alone, based on evaluation of, uh, licensed professionals did not meet criteria for, from the information they were getting for mental illness. So, I mean, if I were to look at it from my more honest personal answer, I think it really depends on what you're calling semantics. What are you calling a mental illness? Yes. Um, sure. What are we defining as pathology, what are we defining as illness? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, but the, the easier answer, easier answer based on statistical findings from psychological autopsy studies is that no, not everybody does. And even the CDC in 2018 put out a report that 54% of the people that have died by suicide had no diagnosis. So 
So no known, uh, you have to use the word known, had no known diagnosis and therefore we're not receiving any behavioral health treatment. So, man, what was your inspiration to actually dive in and get that YouTube channel started? Because I know it's a lot of, you know, like this podcast, for example, much easier now than like 10 years ago, but I still still had to like learn shit. It was hard. The most relevant um, factor that was kind of the impetus for it was really so April of, I think it was April of 2020, our support, our support group for suicide attempt survivors was a local group that mm-hmm. we met in, we met in person at the local hospital. We went to virtual along with everybody else with the, you know, COVID um, shutdowns at the beginning of the pandemic. And when we went to virtual, we opened it up to people across the state, across the country. We even had people from overseas um, contacting me being interested in joining. And unfortunately we grew to the point where I had to start a wait list. So how many people were in the group before you had a wait list? So the, the thing is I have a larger number of people that I reach out to, mm-hmm. to attend. So I have a group members list that I reach out to every month. Not everybody shows up. If I tried to add it up right now, we would, we would probably be somewhere around 18 to 20 people on the list right now, somewhere around half are able to make it each month. Um, so we, we end up with eight to eight to 10 people a month. Once we started getting to 10 10 people showing up is when I kind of capped it for folks out of state. I'm still trying to reserve spots for anybody in Michigan that, that reaches out that wants to join so that they could get right in. But once I created that wait list for the out of state participants, I, I didn't feel good about that. I think about the 24 year old me looking for a group like that, not finding it. And I think, well, if I had found one, but then when I reached out, they said, I'm sorry, we're full. There's no room at the inn. I didn't feel good about that. So that was the probably the largest impetus for starting the YouTube channel, thinking people sharing their stories, reducing that shame, that secrecy could be helpful. And there's been there have been studies of, you know, those who have survived suicidal crisis, sharing stories of hope, of, of help seeking, of um, coping skills can have a protective effect for other people going through the same thing. So it was kind of those thoughts that really spurred it. But yeah, it was not not wanting to turn people away and not having something to offer. What's the name of the channel? The channel is called Speak the Unspeakable, and I got a URL so that people can access it by going to speaktheunspeakable.org. You know way more about this than I do. If you had a virtual room, whether it was daily or weekly or monthly, literally, could be. I, it's just my take, daily, and let the world know about it. Maybe it's limited to English speaking, if that's what your language is. Obviously, it is. You could be training so many people to do this work and you'd have a wait list. And the thing is, here's where I get a little dark. There are people that are going to die because those fucking rooms are not available and you're doing the work. It's more of like we there there and it's doable. Everyone knows Zoom now. Mm-hmm. Not everybody. There are people in that don't have Wi-Fi. We, 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 you know, we're privileged in ways, I guess. Right. We have Wi-Fi and mm-hmm. electricity and but, you know. I think about the work you do. I think about the work Pat out in California is doing and a lot of people and a lot of people. The thing that I think I would like to learn more about maybe from someone like you or him, how to make those rooms function well yeah, and how to, how to handle different situations and really what, what safe, what a safe space really looks and sounds like. Cause I don't think it's always what we think it is. This is probably true for any support group, but the facilitation, the facilitators and and their skills are really important. Huge. Um, And but kind of in the same way of what we've already been talking about, that's important. It's really a lot of the soft skills. It's about how to be a good, caring, compassionate human being and 
well, not just be that, but be able to portray that yes. for somebody. So it's, it's really those soft skills mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that anybody can learn. Um, and then I, I do think anybody who would start such a venture should have a general background information about suicide prevention and, and crisis support and things like that. But on, on my YouTube channel, I have a 30 minute webinar, how to start a suicide attempt survivor support group. There's, there have been some studies of particular models of groups, um, but I, I think it's something that we should see more of. I think it's something that more, more people, especially people that are listening to this, that think they would value from that, try to partner up with somebody and, and get one started. I think, it, I think it starts with one person who wants to do it. So that could, that could I, be you. That could be me. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, not to toot my own horn here, but I make fun of it almost like, Really, I'm the guy that needed to start this fucking thing. Are you kidding me? Me? Like, it, it, you know, I I will give myself a pat on the back for doing it and not quitting and making. You know, you're my you're gonna be like my hundred and whatever interviews. Could not be more proud. Yeah, but like, it shouldn't be me, dude. <laughs> it shouldn't be fucking me. This random bald guy in North Carolina. I'm sorry. I'm not the. Come on. Well, you know, and and related to related to the podcast and related to also related to why I started a YouTube channel. When I was in college, one of the things that did kind of help when when YouTube was in its infancy, people were doing more like vlogging, like sharing about their lives. And there 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 was a person in particular that talked about their mental illness and talked about their suicide attempts and talked about hospitalization. I I thought I learned from that, and I felt like yeah, I don't have anybody in my in my physical circle that can relate to these things, but I can have this one way interaction with this person that makes me feel a little bit less like a freak. Yeah. Um, in my life. So I know you sometimes ask people, how did you, you know, yes, I did. I did put suicide in uh, whatever podcast feature to find, to find you. Yeah. Most people will say, I was thinking about well, so when, myself. That, well, then that's, I think that was what I was slowly trying. My brain was trying to get to. I was reading books about suicide because I, a big part of me wanted to die by suicide. I was looking up YouTube suicide on YouTube because there was a, a part of me wanted. So that's how I was coming into contact with that the same way that that pe- folks are finding you right. finding suicide noted. Yeah. So I guess that was, that was the thought of, that was the thought of trying to also be that, be one of those voices out there on YouTube too. So. Yeah. And you are, but with the, why, why you, I don't know. I mean, I have, I I've suffered from imposter syndrome my whole life and I can still feel this way when I started, when I started the YouTube channel, I was like, who do you think telling myself, who do you think you are to do that? Which I know is not the, the way you're phrasing. You're saying there should have been somebody there should have been somebody else with the doing this, Some right? Some letters behind their name, more letters after their name. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but I mean, I have kind of the same questions, more self self-directed is always thinking, well, who, who am I to do this? And then at some point you got to ask the question or, or saying, why, why am I the one to do this? Ask why not? Right. Like, yeah. why? Yeah. And then when you do it and you get some traction, I think it gets a little easier. I mean, you still fall into that, but you get a little easier and you know, man, I mean, I'm sure you've had this, You've been you've been involved with it longer than I have, but you get people who reach out to you. They say some really nice stuff, and you're like, "Wow, you're just so." I'm just so taken aback. It's just this like, "Whoa!" Like I, it's weird to think that I just could do something, and it has that kind of impact. Yeah. No, I just did the thing. Right. Just I just had that. an idea, and I was like, "All right, let me just sit my ass down." And you know, these days it doesn't take. You could Google or go on YouTube and figure out how to do a podcast in a few hours. You, you work it out, right? Editing. But you're like, holy shit. Two last questions and then I got to go. One, do you still think that you are a bad person, a pariah or a defect or defected? I do not. But that 
old me can creep up in different times and I'm usually good at recognizing it before it becomes an issue. The other question uh, of the four major sports teams in Detroit, uh, do you have a favorite? I wouldn't even know which, which athletic competitions we we would be referring to. No idea about Detroit sports, professional sports. I I was a mid nineties Chicago bulls fan. Okay. That's about all I can, can tell you. Not you and half the world. Yeah. Well, it was also, I, I was a basketball fanatic until, you know, midway through high school where nothing seemed to have that much importance. So when, when I stopped playing, I stopped following. So I have no, oh, so you were Detroit, you were Jordan Bulls. You weren't the bad boys of Detroit Pistons. Yeah, I was, I, I never really uh, was a bad young. boys. Missed it. Um, well, thank you, sir, uh, for your uh, joining me and for talking and keep doing what you're doing. I appreciate your time. And um, yeah, Sean, you as, you as well. Thank Again, thank you. Um, I think your podcast is amazing. And uh, again, the primary reason I think so is because the, the people are so amazing and you, you just treat everybody with dignity and respect. And I, I value that so much. I appreciate that. Thank you. Have a good one. Take care, man. Be well. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. Special thanks to Scott up in Michigan. Thank you, Scott. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com or on Facebook or Twitter at Suicide Noted. Please let the world know about this podcast by sharing it on social media or sharing it with your friends, your family, your coworkers rating and reviewing it on Apple. All of these things help. And we do want more people to find this podcast if they need to hear the podcast. So thanks so much for that. And that is all for episode number 109. Stay strong. Do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon.